welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today I have a solo episode for you. I'm going to dive into what are called intensification techniques. Uh, You could call these training techniques to intensify your workouts. You can call them what I just called them, intensification techniques. Um, Or you could just call them challenging and fun, cool things to throw into your training and spice programming up a little bit to make things a little bit harder, right? And get a little bit more out of the workout in more ways than one. So this is actually straight from a blog that will be airing uh, either today or tomorrow. So you can actually go check out this blog this week as well. And when you go check out this blog, there's going to be a bunch of video examples uh, in the the blog throughout it. But I'm going to link those in the description of this podcast as well. Um, And those are there for you to see what I'm talking about here. So I'm going to discuss today what intensification techniques are, why you might want to use them, what the science says about them. And then I'm going to go over seven different ones. And when I go over those seven different ones, I do have videos on our tailored trainer YouTube page. So you can actually just go to YouTube and search tailored trainer, check out that channel, make sure you subscribe to it. That is the channel that we use for the app. So most of it, if not actually, I think 99.9% of it, uh, outside of like an intro video is just exercise demonstrations. So if you're looking for variations of exercises, you're looking for functional movements to do in the gym, hypertrophy-based movements, strength-based movements, or intensification techniques like these that I'm going to go over today, that is the place to go. So literally go check out the Taylor Trainer YouTube right now. Make sure you subscribe to it so you get updates when we drop new videos. Uh, But it is literally just the whole point of that channel is one, we needed somewhere to host all these videos for the app because we use these videos inside the app to demonstrate for you as you're going through the program. Uh, But It is also used as like a library, like an index. And I wanted trainers and people in the gym and people creating their own workouts and stuff like that to be able to go to this channel and just have this huge library and index full of different exercise variations that they could take and use and put into their programming to help them run better programs and have more fun in the gym. So um, with that being said, I'm going to dive into it today. Like I said, you can check out the blog at Taylor coachingmethod.com slash blog. I almost forgot the URL to my own website. Um, and you can also check out the Taylor Trainer YouTube, which I believe is youtube.com slash Taylor Trainer, but we will put the link for that in the description of this podcast. And last but not least, if you like the idea of these intensification techniques, if you like the idea of these being placed and implemented into a um, well-structured and intelligent program and you don't want to think about it, you just like listen to me talk about it and then you'd love to just be able to do it, make sure you head over to tailoredtrainerapp.com. You can download the app today. You can get access to all of my programs and you can get these things in your training without even having to think, think on how to do it or how to implement it yourself. So I kind of take the guesswork out for you. So um, let's get into it. So today's podcast, uh, the title is going to be something along the lines of seven proven training techniques to intensify your workouts. And first and foremost, before we dive into the actual techniques of this podcast and uh, of this list, we we need to clarify what intensity techniques actually are. And like I said before, some call them intensifiers, other calls them uh, intensification techniques, but really they're just brutal training techniques that will intensify your training. That's why they're called that. They're there to supercharge your gains, quote unquote, and help you discover new ways to get more out of your workouts, not only from a results perspective, but also from an enjoyment perspective as well, which is really important to remember inside of training. A training intensifier or intensification technique is really, it's, it's simply just a method that allows you to get closer to failure, go beyond the initial point of failure in some scenarios, extend your sets 
for longer durations of time, which essentially just allows us to get more volume per set compared to a normal set of, of volume or, or exercise that we would do and ultimately create an exciting new challenge that literally just makes training more fun. And each of these definitions or explanations of, of why you would do this or what these intensification techniques are for have different specific benefits that I want to touch on before we actually go over the specific techniques I'm going to share with you today. Um, so the first one is training to or near failure. Like why would we even want to do that? Well, there's been a lot of research on training to failure as well as training with a specific proximity to failure, which basically means reaching near failure, but intentionally not going to complete failure. So if we have a proximity to failure or we're training to a specific proximity to failure, it basically means that we're stopping at a certain intentional point before failure. So for example, in RIR2, you're stopping with two reps in reserve, which means you're stopping with a proximity of two reps shy of failure. Really simple. In fact, Dr. Brendan Robert, our chief science officer, uh, and I did a research review on this uh, topic for the podcast, um, and uh, we'll, we'll link that in the description of this podcast. You, you can also read the article on our website, and, and I can't remember what we called it, but we basically reviewed um, a study on training to failure, right? And, and we went over it completely. But I'm gonna, I have a quote here from the article, and it's, it's pulled straight from the actual research study. And it says, the meta-analysis, which is basically an accumulation of studies. So for those of you who don't know, there's research studies and then there's metas. And metas are basically a study of all studies. They took all these studies and they look at that. So they study a bunch of studies. So instead of me doing one study on volume, I want to take all the studies on volume and do a meta-analysis on it. But the meta-analysis for muscular strength gains indicated no significant difference between training to failure and non-failure. Subgroup analysis for studies that did not equate training volume showed a moderate and significant effect favoring non-failure training on strength gains. So if you, if you listen to that or if you read that quote, you can see that training to failure is not required for building strength which is helpful because this, as well as other literature on this topic, tells us we can stay a little bit further away from 100% effort or max out uh, AMRAP, failure, anything like that. And we can stay, say, closer to 80 to 90% of max effort and still get the same strength adaptations. However, as you can probably guess, injury risk and the overall level of fatigue drops significantly when we go from 100% max effort to 80 or 90% even, right? Now, the study did not see much difference in muscle growth either. However, volume was not equated for. This kind of tells us that we're missing one small piece of the puzzle since plenty of research, including some of those same researchers in that exact study that they've put out, has shown hypertrophy to occur with more training volume per week, meaning training volume, so how much you do versus the intensity at which you do it, is very important. Right, But that also means that going to failure, might, if that allows us to get more volume, maybe that will help muscle growth, right? And this is the big debate. Um, the problem is, is the recovery aspect, right? So really, what's the answer to this question? Well, 80 to 90% of your training should not be to complete failure. That's, I mean, it's, it's very clear now based on all the research. It's best to use the RPE or RIR scale for this. So reps in reserve is RIR and rate of perceived exertion is RPE. Um, and use those systems and keep yourself one to three reps shy of failure on the majority of your training, on 80 to 90% of it. Uh, however, you need to go to failure at times in order to properly even use those systems and scales. In other words, if, if you don't know where failure is at, you cannot determine how close to it you actually are. And I've talked about this many times on the podcast, but I don't know how to create a proximity of RIR2 or RP8. So I can't create that proximity to failure that I need to optimize gains and recovery if I don't know where failure is, right? So I actually suggest sometimes you should, which is why I think... You know, 
and I tend to suggest about 10 to 20% of your training should be taken to failure, right? Um, and that's why I said 80 to 90 should not be taken to failure. And I'm suggesting this because at least 10 to 20% of your training, um, and this is another reason why I suggest this, not just because you need to test things out to see where failure is, but also because, you know, 10 to 20% of your training is definitely just accessory and isolation exercise, which I mean, at least it should be at least that if not more, but it's 10 to 20% of uh, the, like 10 to 20% of your training. It's hard for me to word this is not only going to be accessory or isolation because realistically, probably more than that, it's very rare that 80 to 90% of your training is just compound lifts. Not many people do that. We do lunges and rows and presses and things like that to be accessory or isolation exercises for that. However, at least 10 to 20% is not only accessory and isolation work, it's also low risk and low skill uh, accessory and isolation work. Things like a leg extension or a lateral raise maybe a hip thrust or a hip abduction. You can and should take those to failure at times because they have a far lower risk of injury and a lower overall degree of fatigue. They're not going to zap your nervous system as much. And because we know that some people have a hard time gauging training effort, there are some studies pointing to failure training being advantageous for muscle growth, and this may allow us to squeeze out more volume, which does increase hypertrophy. We should leave some room for for training failures, basically the point. And the key point with all this being tied into the intensification techniques is that using those intensifiers in your training that allow you to take a set to complete failure may be a smart way to improve your results and body composition at times. And I say at times because you shouldn't take a barbell back squat to failure, but you can take a leg extension to failure at times. And there's plenty of times where you absolutely should because if you can choose an exercise that you can take to failure without creating a lot of systemic global fatigue, which is going to be, there's not going to be joint or central nervous system fatigue, for example, just muscular fatigue. That might be advantageous because we're taking the muscle to complete exhaustion in mechanical tension, which is the key drivers for hypertrophy. And it allows us to squeeze out more reps, which is a higher work capacity and more total volume, both of which will lead to more hypertrophy, right? So we have to be smart with what we choose to, to go to failure. However, we know that this is a big key and some of these intensification techniques can actually help us do that. Now, the second point here is training through and beyond fatigue. This is an extension of the previous point here with the volume, obviously, but training through and beyond failure essentially just means manipulating the way you do an exercise using one of these intensification techniques uh, in order to get to failure and then keep going, which kind of sounds impossible, right? Because in theory it is, obviously, but you know, what we can do is tweak things. For example, let's, let's use one of the methods and I'll just kind of jump ahead. I was trying to avoid saying the methods, but I'll, I'll, I'll use that for example, because one of the methods is called a mechanical drop set, right? It's one of the ones we're going to go over. And this is where we change the angle of our body or the bench, whatever we're laying in the load, et cetera, to give us mechanical advantages, which would allow us to keep the set going beyond failure. So for example, a dumbbell bench press mechanical drop set is where you go from a dumbbell incline bench. So for example, I can do eight to 10 reps with 80 pound dumbbells on a incline dumbbell bench press. So I would start there and maybe I stop one rep shy of failure. So maybe I do eight to nine reps on an incline. I sit up, I have a partner drop me to the bench to a flat bench. I can bench press on a flat bench more than I could bench press on an incline press because it gives me a mechanical advantage. That's why most people can do more weight on flat versus incline, right? Well, now that he, my, my training partner dropped the bench down, I can keep using those 80 pound dumbbells. So I do eight to 10 reps in an incline. I sit up, he drops the back of the bench. I sit back down and I crank out eight to 10 more because I just created an advantage to allow me to continue taking that muscle 
further into a point of complete exhaustion, right? Then I sit back up after eight, 10 reps there, and my partner drops it into a decline bench, right? Some benches can't do this, unfortunately. Some benches can. But for those who can, this is what you, you kind of need it for a dumbbell mechanical drop set. They drop it to a decline bench, right? I can do even more with a decline because, again, it's another advantage from an angle point that gives me a mechanical advantage to use heavier loads or do more weight. So now I go from doing an incline to a dumbbell flat bench to a dumbbell decline bench back to back, and I can use the exact same load across all the sets, taking each two or near complete failure, which is going to allow me to essentially use the angle of the bench to squeeze out more volume, right? Because I'm lowering the angle of the bench, but I keep the same weights in my hand, I can continue pressing that same, same weight without stopping, really. Even though I may have reached failure on a diff the difficult angle um, I, I did right before that, right? And so the key point here is pretty simple. We can use training techniques and intense fires in our training to extend a set further and further without even changing the load. This is going to accomplish more volume and more mechanical tension within the muscle, which are two key drivers of muscle growth. Now, if you did that on set one, it's going to be very hard to do set two and three at 80 pounds. So this might be a technique that you go, all right, I have three sets of eight to 10 on, on dumbbell incline bench already. On the last set, I'm going to do a dumbbell mechanical drop set. And that's going to allow me to squeeze out 20 extra reps of work with the same load on my chest. And that's not going to negatively impact my performance on anything in the session. Now, if you had chest flies or push-ups or anything else that involved your chest after doing that dumbbell mechanical drop set, you might have just shot yourself in the foot. Because if you do that mechanical drop set and then you go try to do chest slides or push-ups, your chest and your triceps at that point are going to be extremely fatigued and your performance is going to suck going into those chest-based movements. So this is not something we want to do at the beginning of a session because it increases injury risk, it decreases quality of form, and it decreases the intensity, meaning the load. So we're probably not going to be able to lift as heavy in those other chest-based movements after we've done this one, right? So it's definitely something that we would throw on the tail end, but this is something we can do to, you know, basically train through and beyond failure. Okay, so the next one, the next point we, I made earlier was extending set duration, right? Both of the situations above literally extend set duration. So we're kind of repeating ourselves again here, but this is going to create more mechanical damage and tension, like I said before, requiring the body to repair and build more tissue, plain and simple. Now, we know due to the latest research that time under tension and muscle damage are both not that important for growth. They just aren't, but rather they are associated with other things that cause growth, right? They are a... Uh, uh, what, what is the word I'm looking for here? They're a proxy, right? Like if you have muscle damage, muscle damage isn't causing growth, but it's correlated with growth because if you do the right things like lift heavy enough, train with enough volume, do enough, have enough mechanical tension, you're probably gonna have some muscle damage and be sore, right? Eventually you might not because you get used to the training stimulus. Hey guys, I wanna take a quick second to shout out the sponsor of this podcast, which is myself. It's my own app, The Tailored Trainer, which is the simple solution to actually looking like you lift. My goal with The Tailored Trainer was to do just that. I had countless amount of people coming into our coaching to get nutrition guidance from us, and they needed training help as well. And I was tired of hearing people tell me, I don't look like I lift. I'm in the gym hours every week. I'm training hard. I'm pushing myself. I'm sweating my ass off, but I don't look like I work out. What is the deal? And the deal is simple. There isn't a periodized plan backing up the effort they are putting in the gym. They don't have progressive overload methods and metrics and measurements inside their programming that are going to guide them to the result they're after, which is why I wanted to create an app that did that for you. Not only 
only does it have actually systemized programs that are effective for your goal, for your schedule, for your body type, and for your experience, because there are tons of programs in there. That's why it's called the tailored trainer, because you can literally tailor your training to your lifestyle and your schedule and your experience level. But it's also going to have the software and the metrics inside to make sure that it's progressive and periodized without you even realizing it. You don't have to do anything and it is programmed properly to get you to progress, which is why I always tell people stop aimlessly working out using influencers, Instagram posts and YouTube videos as your plan. Start actually tailoring the training process to you. And you can do that by downloading this app. It's less than $1 a day. And you can head over to tailoredtrainer.net to read more about it, see screenshots of the app live itself, see reviews from some of the people using it, and see a personal letter from myself as to why I created this app in the first place. So once again, head over to tailoredtrainer.net. Now, let's get back into the podcast. Now, an example of this would be training, you know, uh, this idea is, is training volume leads to growth because it increases the amount of work done and weight lifted. Pretty simple. But when accomplishing more volume, muscle damage is a byproduct. Therefore, muscle damage may not literally cause growth, like I just said, but it's, it's still associated with it and can be a proxy that tells you you are doing an, uh, the right things in your training, right? So that's a little bit more of a deep dive ex explanation of it, right? So to an ex to extend a set, we can use regular old drop sets, myo reps, mechanical advantages, force reps with a spotter, etc. But the main key here is that we avoid injury and decreased performance due to increased fatigue, which is kind of what I wrapped up with on the last point. But how do we really do this, right? Simple. We use them at the right times. So if you have a leg day uh, and your first exercise is a barbell squat and you decide to do a drop set on your first set, just like I said with the bench press example, you are not going to be able to continue having good sets. In fact, you're probably going to hurt yourself. Because it's been shown in research that you are almost guaranteed to lift less weights in the sets that follow that leads to a drop in total volume, which leads to a drop in total results from a body composition perspective. But let's say you do it on your final set of squats. You know, would that be effective? Well, the answer is still no, because it's a compound lift and with a high injury risk. And the rest of your session will fall victim to the fatigue it generated leaving you lifting less weight and less as the workout progresses, right? So we don't always want to do these things. But the key point is that extending a set can be helpful at times uh, to increase your volume and just have fun. But it should be reserved like most of these techniques for the later exercises within a training session or when it will not conflict through the rest of your workout. So the, the latter would be uh, would apply if you did a bench press drop set, but have more exercises that require your chest to perform well, right? Like I said earlier, or if you did a deadlift and then you had RDLs and glute exercises afterwards, right? So we want to save this towards the tail end of our program. But a lot of people, when the research came out, they kind of just wrote off all these things that allow us to do the last two points, training through and beyond failure, uh, or sorry, I'm sorry, training through and beyond fatigue and extending a set duration, both of which accomplish a few different things that I've already said and may lead to increased volume for growth. Most people saw that it drops performance. It's, it's not useful. However, program design is an art form, right? And so if we can manipulate the way we program in order to fit these things in at the right times of the week, of the session, whatever, we're going to be able to get something out of them. We're going to be able to get more volume in our training and more hypertrophy or more body composition changes, better results because we place them in properly, which doesn't always happen in studies. And we can't expect it to because studies are hard to do first and foremost, but they're also not designed uh, to like work, to make these things work always, right? They don't have program design experts doing a lot of these studies. And that makes sense. Like we know that, right? You, 
at the end of the day, studies can't be perfect. But my key point here is, is extending a set and training through and beyond fatigue or getting to or near failure all have been shown to not always be advantageous. Most of the time, not at all inside of training. However, there's plenty of situations I can think of in my experience that have been super helpful to get people to do more training volume and get better results, right? And then the last point I made was making training fun. Um, and, and the truth is, is far too many people forget how important it is to just have fun in your training. Like, yes, it's hard work and you are doing it for a result, but if you hate the process, you will not stay consistent with the process or work your hardest during the process either. So the key point there is making your training exciting, challenging, and enjoyable is the key to being more motivated to train, which will lead to harder training and better consistency week to week, month to month, year after year. So if you really want to get the most out of your training, using these things to make things exciting and fun, in my opinion, is a key, key point. So I've, I've kind of broken down now what they can be used for and the caution of when to, uh, if you don't use them properly and uh, sparingly enough, I should say. And now we're going to get into the different types of intensity techniques. So you can actually like take these things, go look at the videos, obviously, or just Google them because I'm not, I didn't make any of these up. I've just used them. Um, and then place them in your programs when they're, when you feel necessary. And I've even done this with clients in the Taylor Trainer or my, my personal one-on-one clients. And I tell them, you know, like, if you're feeling really good in the gym and you want to just throw in a drop set or an AMRAP or any of these things and I show them what these different things are, I'm like, here's the type of exercises you want to do them with, right? Accessory isolation exercises. You want to do it in the second half of your uh, training program or on exercises that are not going to conflict or decrease performance in uh, ladder exercises that are coming after it, right? The, the exercises that precede it and go ahead and throw them in and, and just monitor your recovery. If you can do one on every single workout and you recover just fine because maybe you're only training four days a week and that's not too much, awesome. But if you're training six days a week and doing these things at every single session just burns you out, it makes you more fatigued or your joint hurts, don't do it. Like it's that simple. It's obvious thing, right? But I do encourage doing these things just because it's going gonna, it's gonna to spice things up. You're going to have fun, right? So um, the first ones to talk about of the seven are drop sets, right? So we have Load reduction drop sets, mechanical drop sets, and myo reps are the three that I put into this drop set category. So load reduction sets are pretty simple. Um, for example, if I'm doing a bench press, because this is just the easiest one to do them with, I would have a spotter behind me, and maybe I'm starting with 225. So I can do about eight reps with 225 pounds. Um, but instead of me using two 45-pound plates on each side like I normally would, maybe I'm doing 25-pound plates, and I'm putting 25s on until I reach about 225. I might unrack it and do my set of however many I can, maybe leaving just one rep in the tank, rack it, or I go to failure. I do as many as I can. I rack it. My spotter pulls the 225s off the side, so one on each side. It reduces the load by 50 pounds, and now I crank out as many reps as I can there. I rack it. They reduce, pull off another 25 on each side. It drops another 50 pounds. I unrack it and rep it out, and I continue doing that until there's just 50 pounds on the bar, so 25 on each side right? You can do this with an overhead press and just put, I did this the other day and I stacked the, the bar with tens and I was doing sets of 10 plus And I just had, I had like five, I want to say I had four or five, 10 pound plates on each side and I would rack it, peel it, rack it, peel it, rack it, peel it. And I just kept going until I couldn't go anymore. And you can do this with any exercise. You can do this with a machine by doing your set of 10 and then, uh, letting the weight stack hit the floor, pull the pin, put it in a, a load that is, I usually recommend 25 to 50% less weight. And then you go again, right? You can do this uh, on the run the rack. So what you do is you can do this with lateral raises or curls. And maybe you start with 
something you can do eight to 10 reps with for like max weight. So maybe I grab 35 pound dumbbells and I do eight to 10 strict curls. I rack it, grab 25 pounds, do strict curls, rack it, grab 15 pounds, do strict curls. And I can do that with lateral raises too. Start with 20s, then go 15s, and then 10s, and then 5s, or whatever, you're just reducing the load by 25 to 50%, and you're repeating another set going to failure. So you're just trying to squeeze out as much volume and get as much blood in the muscle as possible. A mechanical drop set is where we take advantage of the position of our body or the bench or whatever we're using, like I explained earlier. So for this one, you might do the bench press where you go from incline to flat to decline. You can do this with a push-up by putting your feet up on a bench and then putting your feet on the floor and then going to your knees for a push-up. You can do this with a uh, even like a lat pull-down and you can use, um, uh, we used to call it body English, but imagine if you were doing a strict pull down and then when you start to get fatigued, you lean way back and now it's becoming more of a horizontal row. Well, typically people can row more from a horizontal perspective than a vertical perspective. So once I fatigue on a vertical, I'm going to lean back and now I'm doing a high angle horizontal row. Really simple, right? So there's different ways for you to do this that you can just continually uh, improve basically change the angle. You can even do this with chest flies. You could go from uh, having the cables down low and you're doing incline chest flies. Then you fatigue out, you bring the, the cables up to the middle, you max out, and then you bring them up high and you max out. Because when the cables are higher, you can do heavier load or more reps typically with the same load. So these are all examples of mechanical drop sets. And myo reps are the last one. And this is made by, uh, oh God, I can't remember his name. It's a, it's a foreign name. And I'm, uh, it's an old bodybuilder. I want to say his name is Bjorn, but, um, really famous guy. My reps are cool. Basically what it does, it's, this is the perfect example of extending a set beyond failure. So, uh, I did it. I have a video on the tear trainer of me doing it with a seated cable row and I do eight to 10 reps. And once I'm done and I'm fatigued and that's my like RPE nine, let's say I rack it and you take two breaths. So two big breaths that might take you five seconds, maybe 10 seconds. And it's kind of like a cluster set, right? And then I pull three more reps, rack it, take two to three big breaths, three more reps, rack it, two to three breaths, three more reps. So you're basically doing two to three slow breaths, which gives you that five to 10 10 second buffer. And you're performing an extra three reps for as many sets as you can until you can no longer perform three reps. So you would do this until you can only do two with full range of motion. When you can only do two, you're done. Um, Sometimes you end up adding, I mean, 15 more reps because you just keep adding those things. However, again, this is going to take you beyond fatigue and sometimes beyond normal failure. So you don't want to do this unless it's your last set and you don't have any other exercises that day that are going to involve that muscle um, or that would be negatively impacted due to the fatigue of that muscle. All right, next we have partial range of motion extended set. So this is really simple. Um, you Once you fail, you are going to only perform partial range of motion. I stole this from John Meadows, uh, the Mountain Dog, RIP. He had a lot of really cool intensification techniques, and he was really big on this stuff. And his training is exciting. It's fun. So basically what you would do here is pretty simple. You're going to, uh, for example, a good one that I took from him would be um, the incline uh, dumbbell hammer curl. So full range of motion. That, that variation of a curl is probably the, uh, one of the, my favorite exercises for biceps because it takes the muscle through such a long range of motion. It's one of the best ones to take it through as big of a range of motion as possible because you're pulling your shoulders back into the bench, so you're in hyperextension, and when you have a neutral grip and your shoulders are in extension with your elbows locked out, that's actually the only way you can get the bicep into a fully stretched position, right, basically. So when you're from there, you go into a full curl, you're literally going from the max lengthened position of the muscle, max maximum stretch position all the way to the maximum shortened or contracted 
position of the muscle. So with this, what you do is you would do your set. Maybe, again, I keep using the example 8 to 10, so let's say it's 8 to 10. Once you cannot perform any more normal reps, you start doing quarter reps. Or you can do half reps. But for this one, I usually do quarter reps because we're just trying to take it to failure. But um, I go 8 to 10 reps, and then I'm doing little tiny, it's like little tiny pumps at the bottom of the movement. So if you were doing this on a curl, I'm just doing like literally barely bending my elbow, and it looks ridiculous, and it sounds ridiculous. But I promise you, it gives you the gnarliest pump, and you're going to generate a ton of extra muscular fatigue um, and and exhaustion in that muscle. You could do this with uh, squats. So once you're done with air squats, goblet squats, uh, or even a regular squat, you can actually rack it and just do quarter rep squats at the bottom of the squat in that stretch position. Um, You can do this with leg curls. Typically, it works best on exercises that the quarter rep is done in the shortened position um, versus the lengthened. So, for example, a squat, when you're in the bottom of a squat, it's actually the lengthened position of the muscle. So, it would probably be best for you to do little quarter rep squats at the top of the movement because you want small contractions, not like pulsating in the bottom of a stretch. Um, This is why it's not the best for RDLs, uh, but it would be good for leg curls, for example, because you can easily do the bottom uh, of a leg curl. You could easily do the bottom of a leg extension, right? And again, I I usually recommend this for isolation exercises like this anyway, Um, but you're just doing a quarter rep. So you're literally just pulsating the muscle, barely going through the movement at all. But it's just a way to, you finish your last set and then you add an extra 10 to 20 quarter quarter reps, it's going to take your muscle beyond a point of fatigue that you're usually used to. So I I highly recommend trying that one. It's really fun. Um, All right. Next technique is one and a quarter or one and a half reps. I typically just always call them one and a half reps. Um, I have videos on this on YouTube as well, or you can search an exercise and type in 1.5 rep and you'll see a bunch. But this would be, uh, for example, on a push-up or a squat or whatever, you're going all the way to the bottom, halfway up, back down, all the way up. Right. I love this with uh, deficit push-ups because I'm, I'm putting my muscle in a big stretch. I'm starting to press forward, and then I allow myself to get a second big stretch, and then I pump up to the top. Um, this doesn't work well with uh, body weight self-limiting exercise. So like a chin-up, for example, not the best one to do this with. Um, a row, it can work well with. Um, it typically works best with anterior chain movement. So squats push-ups, leg extensions, stuff like that. You can, however, do it with leg curls. You can do it with bicep curls, things like that too. But again, we want to use exercises that aren't too uh, self-limiting or have high injury risk. Obviously, that's how all these are. But you can you can look at an exercise and know, like, would that be an easy one to do a one-and-a-half rep with, right? You can do a one-and-a-half rep with an RDL, and, and you get a big stretch on the hamstrings, and you pump a little bit at the bottom, and you come up to the top. And I like that one. However, again, an RDL can be a high-injury risk movement if you're not safe with these things. So one-and-a-half rep exercises are great ways to just bring more blood flow into the muscle, get an extra little pump at the bottom of movement. Um, and you And you definitely add volume. Because if you think about it, if I do 10 reps of one and a half rep pushups, I'm basically doing 15 reps total volume because I'm doing a bunch of half reps, right? And if I did 10 total reps, half of that is five, you add that to the top. So um, a good way to add a little bit of volume and a lot of tension. Accommodated resistance is a really long-winded, complicated one. So I'm just going to briefly describe. So there's different ways we can do this. But essentially, you can do uh, the the three most popular ones are adding change to a bar, um, adding a band to a bar or doing reverse banded exercises. So these are usually actually reserved for um, compound lifts. However, they can be fun to do with a barbell curl or even a chin up or anything like that. Um, For the chain, it's accommodating resistance in different ways. So with the chains, 
it gets heavier as you go to the top. So it gets lighter when it's in the bottom. So if I'm doing a bench press and I'm coming to the bottom of a bench press, the chains are resting on the floor. So they're not really adding any weight to me. But as soon as I'm about to lock out my elbows at the top of a bench press, the chains lift from the floor because they're hanging from the barbell. And as soon as they lift off the floor, guess what? I just added 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, however many pounds of chains I have to the top of that lift. So if we're trying to strengthen the lockout of that movement, it's a great way to add that accommodating resistance. It also allows us to keep it safe at the bottom of a movement where some people get hurt. So for some people who have bad shoulders or um, uh, past pec injuries and stuff like that, the bottom of the movement is typically where people get uh, pec tears because we're in a maximally stretched position under load because we're stretching our, we're abducting our shoulders. So we're moving them outward and our, by, or, uh, or, I'm sorry, our, our pec is in a maximally stretched position, which means also the pec tendon into the bicep tendon is also in a stretched position, right? So if I'm under a lot of load there, it, it risks uh, a little bit more, it's a little bit more risky towards tearing the tendon or the muscle. Versus the top of the movement, I'm contracting, I'm finishing the movement. Um, so we're adding load to the top of the movement where it's safest and where we might have the most struggle from a strength perspective. And at the bottom, we're keeping it light. This is what's great about chained deadlifts because a lot of people hurt their low back at the bottom of a deadlift, pulling it from the floor. Well, with chains, it is at its lightest off the floor. And as soon as you get past that let's say half a foot, right? You get past the barbell, gets past your shin, and now you're kind of in the clear where you're not gonna risk your low back as much because you can stay tall and get straight and drive your hips through more because it goes from, we used to say this all the time with, with deadlifts, goes from a squat to a, a hip thrust, right? You, you're squatting from the bottom and you're thrusting your hips on the top half of the movement. Well, right when you get into that hip dominant position, the chains come off the floor and you added load. So it's a good way to, to do that. Um, bands kind of work the same as you press into the top of the movement, or pole for, for that manner, it gets harder and harder. Uh, a lot of people use it for speed deadlifts um, and, and bench press as well because it's a, a safer way to do fast reps, but it's also a good way to just simply add tension, right? So there's obviously less stretch and tension being placed on the band at the bottom of a movement because you're getting closer to where the bands are attached and therefore it makes it easier at the bottom and it's harder at the top when you lock out. Reverse bands do the opposite. So you, you can only do this with certain exercises, but for example, with a barbell, you would do this to where the, the bands are attached to the barbell and then to the top of the rack. So it actually makes, um, it, it basically still gets harder towards the top, but it's pulling, it's guiding you up along the way. And you can do this with RDLs too. It's most commonly popular with, um, with uh, a bench press, but when you're at the bottom of that bench press or the bottom of that squat, that's where there's the most tension being pulled on those bands, and then it's going to guide you back up. So it's a good way to do kind of like heavier negatives and things like that. So that's accommodating resistance. Uh, we got three more. Next one is cluster sets. Cluster sets are pretty simple. You can do this in many different ways. My favorite way to do them is sets of three, but essentially a cluster set, what it would look like instead of just like, let's say you're doing sets of three, instead of being three times three, it would say three times parentheses, three times three, because you're doing three rounds of three sets of three. And what you would do is you go three reps, rest 10 seconds, 10 to 15 seconds, three reps, rest 10 to 15 seconds, three reps, rest 10 to 15 seconds. And the cool thing about this is it allows you to do more volume or more load for the same amount of volume. So for example, if I'm doing these three by three clusters, that's nine total reps per set. Maybe I can do, you know, for just for ease of numbers, let's say I can do 200 pounds on something for nine reps, but I can do 300 pounds for three reps. Well, now I can do maybe 250. So I meet in the middle. The first set of three is easy. The second set of three is 
definitely more difficult. The third set of three is really fucking hard. But I just did nine reps with 250, where normally I can only do nine total reps with 200. And there's been some science to prove cluster sets to be effective as well, because now that we know time under tension isn't the most important thing at all, because uh, in this, we actually lower the time under tension by doing that, right? We take those mini breaks, which actually lowers our time under tension for the total set compared to a set of nine. But because total volume is more important than time under tension, we just kind of created a loophole and a hack to allow us to do more load for nine total reps because we focus less on time under tension we focused more on volume. And because of that, we did these three sets of three with a heavier load than we normally do for nine straight reps. Um, and this is a really cool way to do it. And you can also do like three, two, one clusters. So maybe you go three reps, 10 second break, two reps, 10 second break, one rep, 10 second break. And this is a way you could do like, let's say you take your three rep max and you drop the load by five to 10% and then you bust up five reps with it because you went three, two, one, right? That's actually six reps. Um, so if I could do Again, for easy math, let's say I could do 300 pounds for three reps. I might put 275 on there and go three reps, 10 second break, two reps, 10 second break, one rep. So now I'm going heavier than I'd normally be able to go for six reps. However, I'm, I'm lowering injury risk because I have those many breaks and I'm getting more volume for that amount of weight. Um, so a lot of cool ways to do cluster sets. I love them. They're a really good way to build strength and sneak some volume in there. Uh, contract uh, and stretch supersets. So these are actually... Uh, I've never heard anybody coin them this way. I've done these in the past. I've only seen one other person do them and actually talk about them, and that is Eugene Tao. Um, and I've been doing them before I saw him do them. But I, I, anybody who, who understands the science of strength training, I'm sure has tried these. They're really fun. Um, a good example of this would be like a leg curl into an RDL. So you would do seated leg curls, and then you would do uh, an RDL. You could also do like a dumbbell bench press and then a chest fly. What you're doing here is you're shortening a muscle and then you're lengthening a muscle, right? With two super, a superset with back-to-back -back exercises. So what I'm doing here is I'm contracting a muscle. So the dumbbell bench press primarily works on shortening the muscle, shortening the, the chest, contracting. So it's a contraction-based movement. So the main uh, mechanism of muscle growth here is that I'm, I'm under load creating a maximal contraction, whereas the chest fly the main mechanism of growth for that exercise is I'm creating a, a massive stretch under load because I go into this big stretch and then I contract. Same with the RDL. The RDL is a stretch-based movement. I'm sitting back into it. That's why heavy negatives on RDLs are really popular. Same with chest flies. But what I do here is I bring a bunch of blood flow into the hamstrings or the chest by doing a bench press, a dumbbell bench press, or a leg curl, and I create a lot of tension and a lot of uh, systemic, essentially muscular tension, systemic or localized, really, not even systemic, um, blood flow and, and tension and stress on this muscle. And then I take it through stretching, right? Under load. So it's brutal. It's fucking brutal. But it's really, really cool. And I call them contract and stretch supersets. And the last one is a 90-60 contrast set. There's a lot of different ways to do contrast training, contrast sets, so it gets kind of confusing, but this is one I'm stealing from Christian Thibodeau. And basically what you do is you take 90% of your one rep max, you do one single rep with it, you rack the bar, and somebody helps you peel weight, so it's a drop set, to 60%, and you do six to eight reps with that. So the reason you would do this is, is that, not, that one rep for 90% isn't super challenging, right? It shouldn't be, because you're not doing a one rep max. You do it, and you probably have a couple in the tank. But you're doing it with a heavy enough load and you're trying to be explosive with it that what you're doing is you're priming your nervous system and then you're recruiting more motor units and more muscle fibers. So now your fast twitch muscle fibers activate more and then you're recruiting more motor units, which is going to help you be stronger and really stress and fatigue those fast twitch muscle fibers, which is what a lot of us are trying to get more of when we're building muscle, right? There's 
slow twitch and fast twitch, but if we do too much just straight bodybuilding, we won't develop those uh, slow twitch muscles as much. We're always going to train both. Science has shown like everything is kind of split 50-50, but there is going to be training that builds more fast twitch versus more slow twitch. But with this, when we do those heavy loads and we fire up our nervous system through speed or heavy load training, we are uh, recruiting more motor units and we are recruiting more muscle, uh, fast twitch muscle fibers. And then we can fatigue those fast twitch muscle fibers for growth by doing less weight for more reps right after igniting them, right? So really cool, fun way to kind of, this is, this is kind of piecing that athletic style training, that power lifter speed work, uh, power development training into a bodybuilding program. So those are the, the different ones, guys. Like I said, we got drop sets, which breaks down into load reduction, mechanical uh, drop sets, or myo reps. Partial range of motion, extended sets. We have one and a half rep sets. We have accommodated resistance. We have cluster sets, contract and stretch supersets. And then last but not least, the 90-60 contrast sets. Um, and once again, if you want to use these with a structured system, you can go to taylortrainerapp.com because I use these things in my programming. Uh, you can also check out the blog that should be up. If it's not up by the time you hear this, it means that you listen to this this second it published so i love you for that uh but it will be up this week and all the videos are already on the tailored trainer youtube page so you can really see how those are done in the actual in, in the flesh you can watch me do them so you can get a better idea before you put them into your training but i hope you guys like this podcast um as always please leave us a five star rating and review you can fill out the q a form and give us some topics or questions by clicking the link in the description of this podcast um as always guys we appreciate you for listening and we will catch you next time